0: it's important uh, to stress that there is a past present and future aspect of salvation uh, the past aspect of salvation is that the believer has been saved from his or her sins from the penalty of sins their sins have been forgiven but the present aspect of salvation is that the believer is continually being delivered from the power of sin in one's life. Sin is powerful, but God has broken the power of sin in our lives, and we can experience victory over the power of sin. And then there's a future aspect of our salvation, that glorious day when the presence of sin will be no more. Uh, We will be in God's presence, and we will no longer sin because the presence of sin has been removed we must make sure that as believers as Christians that we do not deny the power of the gospel not just to save people from their sins but also the power of the gospel at work in the believer's life I think It's unfortunate sometimes that we highlight being forgiven the penalty of our sins and one day looking forward to when we're forgiven, uh, not forgiven, but when we no longer will sin, but we forget the day-to-day living of the Christian life. And many Christians struggle with living a life in which they are experiencing power, the power of God over the sin in their life. And we don't want to communicate a false gospel. We don't want to communicate and share to people that God's salvation will deliver you in from the, the penalty of sin, but it can't help you when it comes to your daily battle with sin. One of the things that the scripture emphasizes is that When we get saved, it doesn't leave us in our sins. But we're given new life. We're given new direction. Uh, We're given new affections. Praise God that when a person gets saved, they are indeed a new creature in Jesus Christ. And the evidence is there that God has done a work. And that's why when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and ten, he could say to them that you turned to God from idols. That is, there was a radical change in your life. You, you used to serve idols. That was the path that you were on. But God intervened and saved you, and what resulted was the fact that you now have been turned to God from idols. You've done a complete about-face. You're no longer living like you used to live. And who can forget the words of Paul to the Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, a a passage that we'll look at a little bit later, but Paul says, do you not know? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the important words that I want you to hear is what Paul says at the beginning of verse 11. And such were some of you. Amen? Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That is, God intervened in our lives. He saved us. And we're no longer what we used to be. All of that is past. And so we need to keep before us the power of the gospel. That the gospel, when embraced and believed, changes lives. And it's more than just people getting forgiveness of their sin, but they are enriched, they are enhanced, they're able to gain victory over the power of sin in their lives. As we come to Ephesians 5, last Sunday we looked at verses 1 through and 2, where we saw that we are to imitate God And walk in love. And Paul begins verse 3 with that little word, but. It's kind of him saying, look, you're going down this path. And the path that you are to go down is you're to imitate God. And you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. But he wants to alert us to the fact that even though that's the path we are to be walking down, it's possible we can get off the path. It's possible that we miss the mark. And when you look at verses 3 through 6, Paul wants us to realize the danger, the, the tragedy of professing to be a Christian, and yet your life says something else. He wants us to understand that as Christians, we're not perfect. But the direction of our life is that we're continuing going down that path of imitating God and walking in love. And what that looks like day in and day out is that there ought to be purity in our walk and also in our talk. There ought to be a purity of life that is seen in our conduct And not just our conduct, but also our conversation. And so I want us to be able to see the importance of these verses. The first thing that I want us to grasp from our text is the command to be pure in our walk and our talk, in our conduct and also in our conversation. God is concerned about every area of our life. There is to be a universal holiness. His holiness is to touch our our mind, our words, and our actions. And here in a broad way, Paul says, we are to demonstrate We are to rely upon God. We are to be pure when it comes to our conduct, how we live day in and day out, and also when it comes to our conversation. At the heart of verses 3 and 4 is a single command. It's not easily seen, but basically Paul says, do not let certain sins even be named among you. Can I say that again? Do not let certain sins even be named among you. Another way that we could put that is certain sins must not even be named among Christians. And I like the way one Bible translation puts it. But among you, there must not even be a hint of the sins that Paul is talking about. So not only is the believer not to commit these sins, there should not even be a sniff. There should not even be a hint. There should be no indication at all of these sins in our life. That should be true of sin in general, but in particular, Paul is talking about these sins. Now I've heard, I won't tell you where I heard it from, but but I've heard That back in the day, before some of you got saved, uh, you used to spend Saturday night partying. I won't tell you who I heard it from. But after spending Saturday night partying, some of you used to go into your pocketbook or your pocket and get that visine. And drop some drops in your eyes. Some of you used to take that, what was it called, banaca as a mouth freshener. some of you know what I'm talking about. And then on top of that, now we used to take some of that cologne and some of that perfume and try to cover up what we were doing on Saturday night. Now, we thought we were fooling people, but somebody would embrace us and wouldn't say it audibly, but they were saying in their mind, what's that smell? <laughs> Smelling something that you were involved in Saturday night. And so we got to be very careful that when it comes to our walk with God, Paul is saying, look, I, I don't want there to be a, a hint. I don't want there to be a trace. I don't want there to be a sniff of these particular sins in your life. Uh, So don't you go around trying to cover it up. And that's what's funny to me. You know, people try to cover it up and you can tell what they've been up to. And so Paul mentions three particular sins related to our walk that should not be named among us, must not exist among the people of God and those three sins are in verse 3 immorality impurity and greed and immorality is just a very general term now sometimes people translate it sexual immorality it's any sin basically that violates God's standard and immorality can manifest itself As a standard sin that occurs sometimes before marriage. We call it fornication. Sometimes it's one of those sins that shows up after you got married. And it's called adultery. Immorality includes that. But also sometimes immorality can be used for certain sins that are pretty grievous. Like the sin of incest. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and following, amazingly, Paul says, I hear the report that there exists incest among you, among the people of God, the church of God, among Christians. And it didn't break the Corinthians. It didn't sadden the Corinthians. Instead, they were arrogant and proud. But Paul also mentions impurity. And this is a term that was used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, when Paul talks about the fact that unbelievers' minds and hearts have been messed up. And the end result of their hearts and their minds being jacked up is that they've given over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so the idea of the word impurity is broader than the idea of immorality. But both of them are related to sexual sins. Impurity is speaking of the dirtiness, the filthiness of sexual sin. And it was a term, this term impurity could be used in the medical field. And when it was used in the medical field, it could refer to pus or impurities. It could be used in the physical realm to speak of someone who is dirty or to speak of dirt. It could be used in the religious world to mean uncleanness. Paul is using it here in relationship to sexual sins and he's just speaking of the fact that sexual sins can be filthy, dirty. It's a broader idea. And he said, don't let any impurity and I'm not going to take you to the different things that he means because I don't want to defile our own thinking and our minds at this precious time. But when you look at the world that we live in, they have taken God's beautiful idea of sex between a husband and wife and defiled it and polluted it and caused it to be dirty in the eyes of others. And Paul says, when it comes to your life as Christians, immorality, don't let it be named among you. Make sure there's not a hint or trace of it. When it comes to impurity, any impurity, don't let it be named among you. And then he mentions greed. Greed. It's kind of interesting that he would add this term greed because it's just really the desire to want more. It's saying that I'm not really satisfied or content with what I have. I want more. And it can be used in a general sense. And if it's used in a general sense of where you want more, you covet more, it's sin. But it could also be used in a sexual context. The the verse that I read to you earlier in Ephesians 4 verse 19, Paul talks about the fact that they have given themselves over to every kind of impurity with greediness. These unbelievers not only gave themselves over to impurity, but they did it with greediness. They kept saying, they kept acting that they wanted more and more and more. And we see that in our world among unbelievers, that a little bit is not enough. And Paul is saying... Christians, don't let immorality, impurity, or greed, whether it's general greed or sexual greed, don't let it be named among you. There shouldn't be a hint, shouldn't be a trace, shouldn't be a sniff that we are involved in these sins as believers. And the question is, why? What's the problem? Paul tells us in the last part of verse 3 that these sins are not to be named among us because it's not proper among saints. Did you hear that? Immorality, impurity, greed, the desire for more and more, that is something that is not proper. It's not appropriate. It doesn't fit those who are saints. It fits those who are angst, the unbeliever, but it doesn't fit those of us who have been set apart from sin and devoted to God and who are called saints in the eyes of God. Paul says it's not proper. The child of God, immorality is not proper for you. Believer, all impurity does not fit you. Saints, those who have been set apart from sin and devoted to God, general greed and sexual greed does not befit you. It's not appropriate. Paul's just trying to give his readers a little encouragement, a little motivation to to deal with these sins radically, to make sure they're not a part of your life. But in verse 4, Paul identifies three particular sins related to our talk. In verse 3, he identifies sins related to our walk. But now in verse 4, he's talking about sins related to our talk. God is concerned about the words that come out of your mouth. On Wednesday night, we spend time looking at the tongue, taming the tongue. The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue. Paul earlier says in chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. I don't care if you're on the freeway and that person cuts in front of you. Paul says, don't let any corrupt, disease, dirty communication come out of your mouth. And here he's talking about our conversation, the words that we speak. And he identifies again three particular sins, speech sins. And the first one is just Filthiness. That's broad, that's general, but basically it's talk that is shameful. So that when you hear those words, others lower their head and they are ashamed at what comes out of that person's mouth. Filthiness. Dirtiness. Dirt. It has the idea of that which is obscene, that which is dirty, vulgar, unclean. That's not fitting. That's not to be named among the people of God. And then he goes on and uses the phrase silly talk. And really it's moronic talk. It's the talk of a moron. Talk of a fool. Uh, When you hear those words, you say, that's the fool speaking. And Paul said, don't let silly talk be named among you. Don't let the, the talk of a moron, of a fool, be a part of you as a believer. And then he talks about coarse jesting. Some translations render that as coarse joking. The term could be used in a positive way. It was in the ability to turn a subject from one to another. Somebody's talking about this, and you have the ability to turn that conversation to another subject matter. But it's also used in the context of sexual sin, where you take normal words and Turn those words into suggestive sexual words. And some people have that ability. You throw that word out and they can turn it. They can twist it so that it's suggesting something sexually deviant and harmful. Paul says, when it comes to your conversation. When it comes to your talk, when it comes to your, uh, no, the words that come out of your mouth, make sure it must be a reality that there's not a hint or a trace or a sniff of filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting. And again, you might say, what's the big deal? That's what our world says. What's the big deal? Why? Get yourself in a bind over just some words that come out of the mouth. And and there's a lot of answers to why it's a big deal. But Paul just simply says at the end of verse 4 that filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting are not fitting. They're not fitting. It's kind of like he's using a term for wearing clothes in a time where it mattered how the clothes fit. Now, today, we don't care about how clothes fit, right? You, know, you can see a young man and his pants are hanging off his rear end, etc. You no, know, you feel like just saying, pull those things up, brother. And sometimes you see, you know, a lady, I ain't talking about nobody here, But you just wonder, how did she get into that dress? You're saying, it just don't fit. Well, we need to understand that as Christians, there's something that doesn't fit us. No, that coarse jesting, that filthiness, that moronic talk, that silly talk, that doesn't wear well on the Christian. And so Paul says, Don't be involved in these sins. But in the midst of saying that, he gives us a verse, a phrase, so that we can honor our Thanksgiving Day that's mentioned in the bulletin. Paul says, what does fit, what is appropriate, is the giving of thanks. There's your Thanksgiving sermon. So take it and run with it. Giving of thanks. Thanks. As believers, that's what should characterize us. Not filthiness, not moronic talk, not coarse jesting, but giving of thanks. That always fits the believer. And we don't need to wait till Thanksgiving Day to give thanks. We have so much to give thanks and ask. The song told us we give thanks that God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. Giving thanks. Later on in the same chapter, we saw it a while back, but Paul will talk about a person who is filled up with the fullness of God. One of the evidences that person gives thanks in various situations for all things. Giving thanks, not just when you're on the mountaintop. But giving thanks when you're in the valley, giving thanks when your world is turned upside down, giving thanks when things aren't going your way, your life is a mess, but you thank God that he's in control and he's ruling and on the throne. Giving thanks, that's always appropriate for Christians, that fits the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does more than just command these Christians to be pure in their walk and talk. He gives them some counsel. He feels like it's not enough just to command. And so when we come to verses 5 and 6, he counsels them. And he counsels them. And the thing that I want us to see is that we are to be pure in our walk and talk. That's the counsel. Counsel to be pure in our walk and talk. We've seen the command in verses 3 and 4, but now the counsel. Paul takes the role of a counselor. He realizes that some of the things that he has said is challenging and difficult. And so he wants to impart to them some wisdom. And what he does in verses 5 and 6, he makes known to them two realities. Two realities that ought to always be at the forefront of their minds. And from Paul's perspective, if we grasp these realities, then it will move us and motivate us to make sure that immorality, impurity, and greed are not named among us, that uh, silly talk and filthiness and coarse jesting won't, there won't even be a hint of it. But when we grab these realities, it will move us and motivate us to live pure lives. Now, he's hinted at some reason why we should live pure lives. He's saying these things aren't proper for saints, for God's people. Also, he said, which things are not fitting. But, but it's as if he said that wasn't enough to get some of us motivated and moved to live pure lives. And so he confronts us with two realities. And the first reality is this, that people who are immoral, impure, are greedy, they do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Did you hear that? The person who is characterized as immoral, impure, or covetous, or greedy, that person does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Another way to put that person will not inherit eternal life. Now, I'm not making that up. Look at Paul's words in verse 5. He says to them, for this you know with certainty. And notice what he says. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. That's God's word saying this. This is not some word of a preacher or a teacher. This is the word of God that comes forth from the mouth of God through The the writing of the Apostle Paul. Now, the Ephesians were familiar with this reality. They were not shocked. They were not blown out of the water. They didn't say, oh man, I never heard this before. Paul says, you know, you certainly know this reality. They had been taught the word of God, from their salvation. They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that a person who was immoral, that is, one who practices immorality, a person who is impure, that is, one who practices any impurity, a person who is covetous or greedy, that person does not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a reality that each and every one of us needs to really come to grips with as we fight sin, as we fight to get rid of these sins in our life. We must not delude ourselves or trick ourselves or think that there's no consequences to sin. Paul goes on to mention the person who is covetous. He said that the man who is covetous, that is greedy for more whether that's in general or sexual, is an idolater. You know what an idolater is? One who bows down and worships idols. In that individual who is greedy, Who covetous. It, that marks that individual. That person is an idolater. That person has taken this desire for more things or the desire for more sex and made that his or her God. Put it in the place of God so that the person is bowing down Not before the God of heaven and earth, but instead is bowing down to material things, to wanting more things. Bowing down before the idea that they want sex in a greedy way. That is sin. And Paul says, I just want you to understand. I want you to face reality, Christians at Ephesus, that that the person who is an immoral person, or an impure person, or a covetous man, or woman, boy, or girl, that that person does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And Paul talks about the kingdom here, he talks about the kingdom of Christ and God. Sometimes it only mentions the kingdom of God. I think it refers to that time in the future when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years called the millennium. And Paul is saying that if it is your character, if it is your practice, that you are immoral, impure, are greedy, Paul says you won't share in that. You won't have an inheritance in that. Now I know what, possibly some of you might be asking you might be asking the question how many times does a person have to commit immorality or impurity or greed in order not to inherit the kingdom of God in Christ I just want to say to you that's the wrong question Some of us want a figure so that we can do it X amount of times and be safe. Paul says, we're not going there. The the question is, does immorality characterize you? Is that your practice? Is that true of impurity? Is that true of covetousness and greed? And Paul says, if that's your practice, if that's your character, if that's how God sees you, if that's what you're known by, you can rest assured that you will not inherit the kingdom of Christ in God. You won't. And this is not some unique teaching to the book of Ephesians. In First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, we looked at it. Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul says Corinthians. Then the Corinthians were a church. They were believers. They were saints. They had some real problems. And Paul had to remind them, look, such were some of you. And the implication is you're no longer like that. Uh, have you forgotten Corinthians. Do you think that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? And Paul makes it clear, no, they will not. Sometimes we go to a funeral and we we bury a person and they've lived a life of sin. Everybody knows it. And yet we have the audacity sometimes to try to put the person in heaven. The Bible says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Galatians 5, verse 19, Paul, writing to those churches, says that those who practice such things, that is, the deeds of the flesh that he talks about in Ephesians 5, 19-20, those who practice those things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not me having a problem, that's not me coming up with something. That is the word of God reminding us of the reality that the person who is characterized as immoral or impure are as greedy, covetous, that person does not have a stake, does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Eternal life will not be There's not an issue of losing salvation or anything like that. They never had it. They never had it. And so Paul gives this strong warning, strong piece of counsel. The reality is that such people do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then the second reality that Paul gives is that such people are the recipients of God's wrath. Not only do they not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, these individuals also are the object of God's wrath. And that's why, my friend, we got to help our individuals who are professing a relationship with Christ. We got to help them to see that salvation brings about power over sin in your life, that you can live a life that honors God. We cannot allow, quote, a Christian to wallow in his or her sin. Paul says, if you're characterized, by immorality, our impurity, our greed. If your talk is filthy and silly and coarse, then the reality is that not only do you not have an inheritance in God's kingdom, you will experience the wrath of God. You will encounter the anger of God. God. That's Paul's point in verse 6. He said, I don't want you to be deceived about this. That's how he begins the verse. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let somebody come along and give you the smooth talk and get you to deviate from what the word of God is teaching. Don't, Don't let some slickster come with nice sounding words and say, oh, that's back in that day. It doesn't matter today. Now, Paul didn't know the things that we encounter and what we face. He knew nothing about the web, the internet, and all of these avenues for this and that. Paul was just hung up. Don't let anybody trick you. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't be deceived. You must not be deceived this is a life and death matter he's not saying don't let yourself be de- he says you must you must not be deceived to be deceived in this matter can be devastating it, it could result in a lifestyle where you experience the wrath of God where you are tricked and misled and deceived into thinking that it doesn't matter how I live as a Christian, that I can do whatever I want. Paul says, Don't be deceived. And the reason why? He says, Because of these things. What things? <laughs> the things mentioned in verse 3. The things dealing with our walk, uh, the things mentioned in verse 4, the things dealing with our talk. It says, Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There are a group of individuals who are identified as the sons of disobedience. That is, they have not repented of their sins. And have not put their faith and their trust in Christ alone for salvation. If that's your condition. Then you're a son of disobedience. Disobedience is your father. And the wrath of God is going to come upon you. That is the promise of scripture. But the good news is. That you can repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, who on Calvary's cross bore the wrath of your sins in his body. So that you and I can be saved, that having put to death sin in our lives, we can live and walk in newness of life. That's the good news. But there is bad news here. And the bad news should drive us to the reality that God hates sin. There is never, ever a time he loves it. He never cuddles it. He never makes it a part of himself. He hates sin. But he has done something, though, to take care of your sins and my sins. But face the reality. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon those who are characterized by immorality. Are they characterized by impurity? Are they characterized by greed? The wrath of God will come upon them. The wrath of God will come upon those who might not do outwardly those things. Who might not be uh, evident in their conduct, but their conversation, their conversation, whether it's filthy conversation, whether it's silly talk conversation, or whether it's the idea that it's moronic and foolish and coarse jesting. God's wrath. His anger comes upon those who are characterized as either one of those three things. And I don't want to, I don't want you to get the impression that there's only these six sins that God is concerned about. God doesn't want any sin to be named among us. No sin is proper or fitting for us as believers. And if you're characterized by a particular sin that's not one of these six, you can still spend eternity in the lake of fire. Let me take off my preaching hat. Let me take off my, quote, prophetic hat. And let me put on my pastor's hat. This is a hard sermon. This is a difficult sermon. Because some of you are struggling with some of these particular sins. Struggling to such a point that you're wondering, am I genuinely saved? Am I a part of the family of God? And that's one good thing about the spirit of God. If you are a true child of God, the spirit of God will not allow you to get comfortable with sin. If you're comfortable with the practice of sin, if if sin characterizes you, if filthiness is just coming out of your mouth and you don't repent of that sin, you don't turn away from that sin, you don't seek to kill that sin, that says something. But I, I want you to know, and particularly when Paul talks about immorality, There are Christians who struggle with pornography, with masturbation, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to hide that until you go to your grave? When God is saying, find a brother or sister in Christ who can help you in your walk with God. There are too many resources, my friends. Too many good books. Too many godly people that can help you fight sin. And, And sometimes we just need to throw up our hands and admit that you need help. And that help sometimes can come through books. It can come through another person. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that these sins, any sin, is okay. That you can just keep... Going on in your walk with God, so to speak, and everything is fine and dandy. And so I would encourage you seek help. I would encourage you, there are good resources that help Christians get freed from immorality and sexual sin, etc. There are good resources out there that will help you tame your tongue. You can keep waiting for a breakthrough all you want. You're going to have to fight and kill sin. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your word. That you want us to be pure in our walk. And you want us to be pure in our talk. And Father, help us to... Look at the mirror of your word and see these realities. That if we're characterized by certain sins, if we're characterized by sin, if that's our character, if that's our practice, then we don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. That we will be the object of your wrath. So I pray that you would use your word to move us and to motivate us to be pure in our conduct and pure in our conversation. Help us by your grace and by your enablement for that to happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.